Well, as you probably guess, we're going to Romans chapter 13 this morning. You can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Now, if there's one thing that the book of Romans reveals to us, is that God is able to change the human heart. God is able to create real change, not just a surface level change in behavior, but a change from darkness to light and from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. This is contrary to the world that we live in. Among those who are in the world who are without the life of God in their hearts, they often recognize that real change is not actually possible for those who live apart from God. A recognition of this in popular media was in the movie Frozen and the song Fixer Upper. They give the confession that people don't really change. And that the best that we can hope for is that by showing some love and compassion to one another that we can bring out what is the best in humankind. And on a human level, that's true enough. But what we're dealing with here in the church is not merely the human level. What the church deals with is the human level in intersection with the divine reality, the supernatural world of the Spirit of God. That we are dealing here not just with men's theories about how to help people live a better life, but we are dealing with the very word of the creator of the universe himself and the power that he has to bring light out of darkness and life out of death. Very profound. And so when we come to Romans chapters 12 and 13 in this most important book that has ever been written, we find that the life that God calls us to live as Christians is not a merely human life. It is a life that is infused with the power of God himself. A life that is filled with the Spirit of God and is able to live on a different level than the way most people live their lives. We're not just involved in a fixer-upper program here in the church, but we are involved with the new birth. As Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You don't need a little fixing up. You need to be born again. And that's what God has sent Jesus into the world and his spirit to do. So turn with me to Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week, looking at this instruction that Paul gives to the church at Rome concerning how to live the Christian life in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was a real man in time and history, who lived in an actual place, born in Nazareth, ministering in Galilee, coming to Jerusalem, dying on a Roman cross underneath the hands of the Roman governor and his soldiers, buried in the tomb. And that three literal days after his burial, after his death, he was alive again. And he appeared to his disciples. And he gave us the message of the gospel. That message reveals to us that Christ is coming again 
and that we as Christians, we who have believed that the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, we who have believed that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen from the grave, that He is alive, and that He is at the right hand of God in heaven, we believe that He's coming back. And the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is everything to us. It gives us perspective on who we are, what our life is, what our purpose is. And Romans 13 brings it together for us. Let's read the whole paragraph here. We covered the first verse and a half last week. We're going to cover the second part of this paragraph today. But follow along as I start in Romans 13:11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." We really do need to change, not just in our outward behavior, but at the very core of what a human being is. We are born in sin, but by the power of God, we can be born again and receive a new heart. We can receive a new principle of life at the very center of our consciousness that is the defining element of our new self in Christ. As believers in Christ, who have been born again by the word of God, it is our duty to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is this our duty, but it is also a privilege for to live the life of God in this current moment is so much better than living in a state of spiritual darkness and death. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And those who have that fruit of the Spirit in their life, well, that is a blessed position to be in. So not only is it our duty to be filled up with the Spirit of Christ, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a great privilege to live a life where you experience joy. It's a great privilege to live a life where you experience peace. It's a great privilege to experience a life of self-control. For what are the opposites of those three things? You can live a life of addiction, the opposite of self-control, enslaved to evil desires that destroy you and your relationships. You can live a life of anxiety, the opposite of peace. The peace of God that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is strongly contrasted with the harried state of the soul, the anxious state of the soul for so many in the world who are apart from Christ. And the depression and sadness, the great weight of sorrow that hangs on the face, the countenance of so many that you walk by in this world, to be able to live a life of joy in contrast to that. To be a Christian is to be mentally healthy. You know, the world sometimes is very good at identifying mental illness, but you ask the world, what is mental health? 
And they'll say, well, it's the absence of mental illness. But what is mental health? Mental health is Christ. Christ-likeness. He is the mentally healthy person. Read through the Gospels and take a look at the mentally healthy man. The man of strength. The man of peace. The man of joy. The man of compassion. The man of courage. The man of love. You see in Jesus Christ a man who is in self-control. Nobody can push his buttons. Nobody can make him do anything except for what is right and good in the sight of God. That's the picture of mental health. That's the picture of what we as the disciples of Jesus Christ are being made into that image and that likeness. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says at the end of this paragraph, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have this new principle of life, but it's just a small, immature spark of life at the beginning of your Christian experience. And as you feed the fire of that spark, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, more and more your heart crowds out the sins of the flesh, the deeds of darkness that Paul is talking about here, and it is replaced not by merely human goodness, but by the divine growth of the Spirit of God producing that fruit in your heart and in your life. That's what put on the Lord Jesus Christ means. And I told you this week, we're going to take a look at some of the specifics because Paul gives us some specifics here in this passage of what we are supposed to put off like dirty clothes and what we're supposed to put on. But we're not talking about putting off and putting on your body. We're not even talking about putting off and putting on mere behaviors, but we're talking about putting off and putting on the very characteristics of your heart and soul, getting to the deepest part of who you are and putting away what is filthy, what is evil, and putting on what is righteous and good. And this is the privilege we have because of the work of God in our hearts and in our lives. So let's have a word of prayer before we dig into some of the specifics this morning. Bow your heads with me. Father God, we come before you this morning with a simple, direct prayer. We ask you to give us insight into how you can truly change the heart of man. We do believe that you are real. We do believe that this book is your word. Help our unbelief. Help us to see how we can truly change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look at the text and we see that the command to cast off the works of darkness is contrasted with its opposite of putting on the armor of light. Paul repeats this same basic command in verse 13 with a different metaphor. Instead of the casting off and putting on of clothing, he talks about our walk. And here, he starts with the righteous walk, walking properly as in the daytime, in contrast to the deeds of darkness, the deeds of the night, that he characterizes with a list of sins. But also, in verse 14, he repeats it again, going back to the metaphor of putting on, but then ending with a slightly different metaphor of making no provision for the flesh. So three times here in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14, he creates this contrast of two different ways that you can go. Two different lifestyles. One that is godly, one that is ungodly. The world 
does not speak in terms of godliness and ungodliness because we live in a secular society. In a secular society, you do not measure virtue by its accordance with God's character, for God is not a part of the discussion. And so in a secular culture, you measure virtue by humans. We live in a secular humanist society, which is also being largely influenced by postmodernism and by Marxist thought. But in any secular or atheistic worldview, godliness is not something that enters into the equation. But if you don't have a standard by which to measure what is virtuous and what is not virtuous, well then it's all open for debate. And whoever is the most persuasive, whoever has the loudest platform and the strongest voice is able to determine what the morals and values of society are going to be. And they are changeable, as we have seen. But when we come to the scriptures, we find a totally different worldview, where there is an objective standard for morality in the person of God himself. And so godliness is good ethical behavior, and ungodliness is what is evil, harmful behavior. God is the one who has created the world. God is the one who judges the world. God is the one who has given us the standard for right and wrong. Do not be influenced by the society around you to accept their morals, their standards, to think that mankind is free to decide what is healthy and what is unhealthy, what is harmful and what is not harmful. Reality is reality, and in reality this is God's world. And if you act in an ungodly manner, according to the revelation of God, there will be consequences. Always. Unavoidable consequences. And so, let's take a look at some of the specifics of virtuous behavior, godly behavior, healthy behavior, in light of God's word. Paul here when describing the deeds of darkness that we are supposed to put off, he gives us a list of six. The first four go well together, and the last two are a pair. The deeds of darkness, the works of darkness, as he says in verse 12, are listed in verse 13 as orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and sensuality. That's the first four that go together. These sins of the night are sexual sins. They are sins of pleasure, sins of pursuing illicit pleasure. The Bible is not against pleasure. God is a God of joy. God is the one from whom every good and perfect gift has been given so that mankind is able to rejoice with the joy that comes from our Creator. God has given us wonderful pleasures. Sex is one of those wonderful creation gifts of God. But sin takes the best things and turns them into the ugliest and worst of things. That's the sinfulness of sin. The wickedness of evil is how it can take something wonderful, something wholesome, something good, and corrupt it into something vile and disgusting. The world does not understand this. The world often accuses Christians of being anti-sex. 
Recently, I watched the movie Audacity. that's put out by Living Waters Ministry, Ray Comfort being one of the, the heads of that ministry. And that movie is a, the Christian character sharing the gospel with one of his co-workers. She says, why is God so against sex? And his response was quite humorous. He said, God's not against sex. The whole book starts with God telling two naked people to have babies. <laughs> Marriage is a wonderful thing. Have you ever read the Song of Solomon? It's called the Song of Songs. It's a very large psalm, second to only probably to Psalm 119 in the Bible. And the whole theme of the song is the wonders of marital love and marital sex. Marriage and the sexual union between man and wife is one of the most precious gifts that God gives to mankind. And therefore, it must be protected. It must be guarded against being corrupted by sin. When the Apostle Paul says here that we are to walk properly in the daytime and not in orgies and drunkenness or sexual immorality, the Romans were known for their drinking parties. This was a common element of Greco-Roman society, pagan culture at that time. And so the Christian way was contrary to the pagan way. In our society, we have two competing worldviews. Paganism is not a dominant worldview in our society, but instead secular humanism has been and Marxism is becoming. But the world has its drinking parties today. And young people, you have to make your choice at a young age. Who are your friends going to be and what are you going to do with your free time? Are you going to go to the drinking parties where men try to get women who are not married to them to have sex with them? Are you going to participate in those deeds of darkness where young men get drunk and young women get drunk and they do things that lead to all kinds of disasters in their lives? Choose wisely. The way of God or the way of the world? Walking in the daytime or walking in the last hour of the night? Participating with those who are about to be judged for their corruption of God's wonderful gift. When he talks about sensuality and sexual immorality, he's going beyond the sex that happens at drinking parties to all sexual impurity and immoralities. Our society is awash and adrift in sexual sin. From the secret sin of pornography to the public sin of gay pride, there is so much sexual sin in this society, it is overflowing. That overflowing of wickedness has consequences. It has consequences in the individual's life. It has consequences in the family. It has consequences in the city, the state, the nation. Sexual sin is destroying this nation. We are those who are awake. We are those who know our God. We are those who are aware of what sex has been created for and who gave it to us and how it is to be guarded and protected and used for good, for glory, for beauty. Let us not walk 
in sexual immorality and sensuality. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Here in Ephesians, Paul gives very similar moral instruction to the Christians based upon the truths of the gospel, just as he does in Romans, just as he does in all of his letters to the churches. But I want us to look here in Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 18, because it is strongly paralleled with exactly the types of commands and the reasons for those commands that Paul is giving at the end of Romans chapter 13. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 18. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, everyone who is those things has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You can be sure of that, the apostle says. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks, it says. Do you know what alcohol does to the human brain? It's a poison. Alcohol is a poison for the human brain. Your brain is the most precious gift that God gives you as far as your physical self goes. Your brain is astoundingly complex. Your brain is the wonder of the universe. That you were created as a human being with a human brain and that you were not a worm with his 23 neurons but you've got the billions of neurons that are woven together in the design of the Creator to create the, the consciousness, the reasoning ability, the aesthetic appreciation, the ability to worship and magnify God through the gift of language. God has created you amazing. And for sinners to think that they have to poison their brain in order to have a good time reveals that Something vital is missing in their souls. If your brain must be poisoned into thinking that it's having a good time, something's wrong with you. 
you're missing your purpose. You're missing your meaning. You're not using the brain that God has given you for the purpose that he's given it to you. And why has he given it to you? So that you can know God. So that you can sing praises to him. Do you know the joy of praising and worshiping God from the heart, from the spirit, with your mind? There's nothing like that. That is the joy that we've been created for. That's the contrast that Paul lays out here between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about throughout this section. You're putting off the deeds of darkness and you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Here in 1 Peter... We are given the command, very similar to what we have in Paul's letters, not just Romans, but also Ephesians, which we saw. Colossians uses this same metaphor of putting off and putting on. And here, Peter writes, you are to put away all malice and all deceit, in verse 1. All hypocrisy, all envy, all slander, you put it away. And you come down to verse 11, and you have a continuation of that thought where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Put them off and abstain. Now, Back in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was president, the first lady, she focused her work on helping young people to not abuse drugs. And Nancy Reagan was famous for a very simple instruction that she gave to young people. Just say no. Just say no when someone offers you illicit drugs. And people criticized Nancy Reagan for that simplicity. They said, just say no is not not enough, not sufficient. You're oversimplifying the issues and the problems and and all of this. People need more than just say no. And so, you know, there's education campaigns and all kinds of things that are going on. But I I think Nancy Reagan was on to something there. That yes, education is good. Learning about the effect that drugs have upon the body and, and seeing, learning from other people's bad examples, all of that can be very helpful in fortifying you and giving you strength. But there is something to just say no Now, the Bible has been accused of the same kind of oversimplifying of human problems. Behavioral psychologists look at the Bible and it says to put off this behavior and put on that behavior, and they say, well, that sounds awfully simplistic to me, right? Just abstain, that's it? Well, the Bible command to put off sin and to abstain from fleshly desires is given in a context, okay? It's not a bare command, It's a command within the message of the whole book. And look at what we have here. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. You see, there's a context for the command framing the command. You have to recognize your identity. You have to know who you are in order to be able to abstain. And who are you? You're a Christian. You're a saint. You're someone who has been born again and set free. 
You're someone who has been called out of the world to be a part of God's holy temple as a new creation, and you're someone who is on your way to the kingdom of God in the resurrection of the righteous. And once you understand who you are, that gives you power to be able to say no to the temptations and the sin. If you have a strong identity in Jesus Christ, then you will not fall prey to so many of the temptations that are in this world. Now you look at people in the world who fall into drug addiction and drug abuse who did not just say no. Many of them didn't have a strong identity. They didn't have a good family life. They didn't have solid friends. They didn't really have a good sense of who they were. They were trying to discover themselves. And without that strong sense of identity, they were easy prey for the drug pushers. This is the way it is with with lots of things. Cults. Cults will prey on those who do not have a strong sense of identity, not a strong sense of family, not a strong sense of belonging, not a a sense of continuity with with their country and their ancestors and their past, but, but people who just feel very isolated and alone. They are easy prey for people to manipulate and to bring into a cult. And so the identity that we have is what grounds us and gives us the strength to be able to resist the temptation. You are a sojourner. That idea of sojourner is vitally important to Romans chapter 13. The command that Paul gives is the last hour of the night. The day is at hand. The darkness is far spent. And so what sort of people are you supposed to be in light of the fact that this is not your permanent home, but that any day now, the kingdom of God is going to break forth. Jesus Christ is going to come back. That you have a place there. You have a home that Jesus Christ has prepared for you. And so that's why we have the power to just say no to the temptations of the flesh and the world and the devil. Another context right here in this very verse is the acknowledgement that these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. When you see the destructive effects of drugs upon the human body, that gives you wisdom to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, here's the thing. You all were born in sin. You all lived a time in the power and control of sin and you saw the results that that brought about in your heart and in your life. You're not a stranger to the destructive power of evil desires and giving in to temptation. And so having known it, Peter says the time that's already passed is sufficient to have experienced those things. We've learned from that. We've learned that that's not the way that we want to live our lives. But we want godliness. We want virtue. We want to put on the things that make for a healthy soul, a strong mind. So don't allow the things that are self-destructive, waging war against your soul, to tempt you. This is a battle that takes place in your mind. Are you allowing yourself to forget about the destructive effects of sin? Are you allowing yourself to be persuaded by the lies of those who are in the world to let you know how much pleasure, how much fun, how nothing's really going to go wrong, there's not going to be any bad consequences, we figured out how to ameliorate all the consequences so that now we can sin all we want without any of those bad things happening. 
you start believing that, then you will fall into those temptations. It's a battle in your mind. What do you believe? How do you think? Where is your identity? Now, since we're here in 1 Peter, let's also go to James chapter 1. Here you see in James chapter 1, I've got highlighted the last part of the verse. But notice the first part where it says, put away. So the same instruction that Paul has, the same moral command, put it away, put it off. The same instruction that Peter has, set it aside, do away with it, abstain from it. It's the same command that we have here in James. In James chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Therefore, and notice how this command is always connected to its context. It's not a bare command. It's not sheer willpower, but it's willpower informed by the knowledge of God through his word. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So you're putting away one and you're replacing it with something else. You're taking out of your soul the filthiness and the wickedness, and you're just banishing it from your thoughts and your beliefs, from your imaginations and your motivations. Recognize the evil and get rid of it. This is a battle in your thoughts, in your soul. And what you put in its place is the implanted word. This can only be done with meekness. The pride of man says, I don't need God's word. I don't need to replace evil thoughts with good ones. I'm doing just fine. I can handle it. I'm smart enough. The meek soul is the one who trembles before God's word. The meek soul is the one who says, I don't know anything. I'm a fool. I'm easily deceived. And I've seen that happen over and over again. And so I'm going to humble myself before God's word and if God's word says something is harmful, then I'm going to get rid of it. Whether I think it's that harmful or not, I'm going to believe what God has to say about it, not trust in my own experience or my own mind. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And that fool is going to continue on with wickedness and filthiness in his soul. But the meek soul receives the word of God He doesn't just listen to the sermon on Sunday morning, but he invites that truth from Scripture into his very deepest self to define reality. To say, this is who I am, this is what the world is, this is what's good, this is what's evil. And as that word is implanted, you meditate on it, you believe it, you put it into practice, that is how the soul is saved. Souls need saved. Years ago, Amy Winehouse was a famous musician and she died at a young age because of filthiness and rampant wickedness. What could have saved her soul? There's only one. It's this, this word of God. It must be received. It must be believed. Now people can go on and some people survive a lot longer in the filthiness and wickedness of the world than others. Not everybody is like the the drummer for the Foo Fighters who died this last week at the age of 50. 
Some people manage their sin a little bit better than that. But in the end, there's only one solution for the controlling evil desires that are in the world. And that is the word of God implanted. It's the word that we're preaching. It's the power of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we need to see every soul as a soul in need. I'm encouraged by the testimony of folks in our church who talk about those that they're praying for to share the gospel with, those that they are sharing the gospel with. You need to see every soul as a soul in need. The transvestite prostitute in Los Angeles, a soul in need. Somebody that's worth sharing the gospel with. The first grader in Sunday school, in a good church, a soul in need. Doesn't matter how innocent, how young, or how guilty and how depraved, the Word of God saves the soul. People really do need to change. And real change, essential change, takes place through the Word of Christ, the Gospel of God. I want to look back at Romans chapter 13 and and talk about what we're supposed to put on. We talked about what to put off. We didn't get to all of it, for time's sake. We could talk more about the quarreling and the jealousy, which is a Christian sin that you do see quite often, not to be among us. We are not a quarreling, jealous people trying to outplay one another for position and power, trying to guard our own interests. Now, we are a group of Christians who prefer others to ourselves and would gladly spend and be expended for the sake of one another. I'll die for you, you'll die for me. We're not going to fight against each other for position and power and pride and place. But what is it that we're supposed to put on? You see in verse 14 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've talked about that. We have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 3.27, but we're supposed to continue to do it. We're supposed to be what we are, and we're supposed to be what we will be, and it's all about Christ. But another metaphor that points us to putting on Christ, you see at the end of verse 12, you are to put on the armor of light. That's a beautiful phrase, the armor of light. Men, this is particularly appealing to you, because men are the ones who traditionally have been the fighters, the ones who go to battle, the ones who put on armor. Our armor has changed a little bit. Our weaponry has changed a little bit, but we still uphold and look up to men who are brave and courageous and strong in the battle with the body armor and the assault rifle. Well, in Paul's day, it wasn't body armor and assault rifle, but it was the sword and the shield, the helmet and the breastplate. And he talks about that armor of God in fullest detail in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. But, ladies... That command to put on the armor of light is not just given to men, although it's kind of a manly metaphor, but it's a command that goes to all of the women in the church as well. You need to be fully outfitted in the armor of God. You are a part of this spiritual battle. Today, I'm not going to go and do a detailed study of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, but what are we going to do? We're going to look at the armor of God 
in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You may have forgotten that Paul also utilizes this metaphor in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. And I think this one is the appropriate one for us to focus on today because this is the one that is most in the same context as what we have in Romans chapter 13. The context of Romans 13 is to put on the armor of light in light of the fact that the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Speaking of the day of the Lord, well, that's exactly Paul's subject here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As Paul wrote to the Romans, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, it is clear that the Apostle Paul made a priority of teaching the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to all the churches that he established. Now, Paul did not establish a church at Rome, but he assumes a large amount of knowledge on their behalf because he doesn't spend much time in his letter to the Romans telling them the doctrine of Christ's second coming. Instead, he just assumes it for the command there at the end of Romans chapter 13. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And Paul says, I think you Romans already know about this because every church that is a gospel church, every church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ should be clear on the truth about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and should be expecting it. We are a forward-looking church, as all true churches are. And all of the teaching that the Bible has concerning future things, the time of the end, eschatology as theologians call this doctrine, recognize that in the letters of Paul, you have a pastoral eschatology. That the teaching of Christ's second coming is immensely practical. And no better illustration of this than Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. At the end of every chapter in this letter, Paul references the second coming of Christ, his parousia, which is the Greek word talking about his advent, his presence with us once again. We want to be that forward-looking church. So let's take a look at how Paul talks about the day of the Lord and the armor of God here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we talk about, well, if we're putting off all this other stuff, what is it that we're supposed to put on? Now, Paul writes, Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The sins of youth include the drinking parties and the sex parties. Uh, men hopefully grow up at some point and they replace the sins of their youth with the sins of adulthood, the sins of their maturity, where there's jealousy and strife and 
maligning one another and cheating one another and, and people try to gain place in the world. And we as Christians are to have none of either of those. We don't have the, the youthful sins and we don't have the sins of pursuing pride and place in this world and stepping on anyone that gets in our way. We Christians instead are putting on the armor of light. Notice the pieces here that Paul singles out for us. Since we belong to the day in verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith, he's got the breastplate, he calls it the breastplate of faith in this context. Our faith is what protects our heart from damage that is done by spiritual deceptions and lies and evil deeds. Faith preserves us. The breastplate is not only a breastplate of faith, it's also a breastplate of love. And so Paul links together faith, hope, and love in this armor as the three crowning virtues of the Christian life described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So when he's telling us to put on the armor of God, he's telling us to just live lives of faith, hope, and love, the crowning Christian virtues. And last, we have the helmet is the hope. Because in this context, the hope of salvation is what he's been writing about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in 1 Thessalonians 5. And as he's referenced it at the end of every chapter in this letter, this is a letter that is powered by hope. Knowing your destiny will give you wisdom and strength to live a godly life. I was sharing with the Iwana kids this last week, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, about the rapture of the church. For many of the kids, I believe it was a, a new concept, a new idea. What is wrong with us that our kids don't know about the rapture of the church? Why aren't we talking about these things? Why aren't we expecting it? Why aren't we preparing them? We should be telling our children, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And I want you to be ready. I want you to be with me when I meet the Lord in the air. Our hope, our Christian young people need to know what the destiny of this world is. They need to know what is the right side of history and who is on that right side of history. And it is Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. Let's join him on his side. And put on the armor of light. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Lord God, your word is powerful, but only when it is believed do we experience that power. Lord God, I confess on my behalf and on behalf of your people here and everywhere that we are often self-deceived and can deceive ourselves into thinking that we believe your word much more than we actually do. Lord, if we believed your word, how different our lives would be, how much more strength we would display, how we would resist temptation, how we would be engaged in every good work. Lord God, we need an increase in faith. For your work from start to finish is by faith. We are saved by faith, justified. We are being saved by faith, being sanctified. And we will be saved, not by our works, not by our faithfulness, but by faith in Jesus Christ, who is coming again and who has the power to transform these mortal bodies into immortal ones.
We look forward to the fulfillment of that promise. Just as you have fulfilled every other promise that you have given to mankind, we know that you will not fail. So increase our faith. We pray it once again at the end of our service as we prayed at the beginning of this sermon. Amen.